Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from first from the book of First Peter, chapter one, verses thirteen to twenty-one. Ito ang salita ng Dios. Kaya lagi kayong maging handa, nagawin ng kalooban ng Dios, magpakatatag kayo, at dubos na umasa na matatanggap ninyo ang mga pagpapalang ibibigay sa inyo kapag dumating na si Jesus Kristo. Bilang masunuring mga anak ng Diyos, huwag kayong padadala sa masasamang hilig ninyo nung hindi pa kayo nakakakilala sa Diyos. Banalang Diyos na tumawag sa inyo, kaya dapat magpakabanal din kayo sa lahat ng ginagawa ninyo. Sapagkat sinasabi, sina, sinasabi ng Diyos sa kasulatan, magpakabanal kayo dahil banal ako. Walang pinapabura ng Diyos, hinahatulan niya ang mga tao ayon sa gawa ng bawat isa. Kaya kung tinatawag niya kayo, niyo siyang ama, kapag nananalangin kayo sa kanya, igalang niyo siya habang naninirahan pa kayo sa mundong ito. Alam naman ninyo kung ano ang ipinangtubos sa inyo mula sa walang kabuluhang pamumuhay na minana ninyo sa mga ninuno ninyo. Ang mga ipinangtubos sa inyo, hindi ang mga bagay na nawawala katulad ng gito o pila kundi ang mahalagang dugo ni Kristo. Katulad siya ng isang tupa na walang dungis o kapintasan na inihandog ng, sa Diyos. Bago palikain ng mundo, pinili na ng Diyos si Kristo para maging tagapagligtas natin at ipinahayag siya ng Diyos nitong mga huling araw alang-alang sa inyo. Sa pamamagitan niya, sumasampalataya kayo sa Diyos na muling bumuhay at nagparangal sa Kanya. Kaya ang pananalig ninyo sa Diyos at umaasa kayo sa Kanya na muli niya rin kayong bubuhayin at pararangalan. Ito ang salita ng Diyos. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Uh, so, as you just heard, for the next several months, uh, we will be uh, in a season uh, that we're calling public faith. Uh, it's really rooted in the conviction that the Christian faith is not just uh, a private or a personal faith, uh, but that actually the, the Christian faith is a public and communal one uh, that weaves into all areas of our lives, including uh, inviting others to experience that faith. Faith And through our sermon series that we'll be having over the course of these next several months, through our classes, uh, we really do hope that we all can begin growing uh, more and more to reflect uh, the character of Jesus, but also to possess what um, theologian Richard Mao calls a convicted civility. Uh, others have called it a faithful winsomeness, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, grace and truth in the way that we talk about our faith. Learning to have conversations uh, about faith uh, can often be difficult, but there is a way to be able to engage people in the Christian faith in a way that is both faithful and also welcoming. Uh, and so to that end, we will uh, be navigating some of those challenges through the various offerings that we're going to be putting in front of you. I'm just recapping a little bit of what you just heard Davey say, just to emphasize all the more how important we think it is for all of us to engage well over these next several months. Uh, the 
Uh, first big way that you can get involved is to uh, join the class that will be starting next week. Uh, Jen Chan, who works with a partner organization called City to City, uh, she will be leading that class, uh, how to have, or having spiritual conversations, uh, again, focusing on how do we have really good spiritual conversations that are both faithful, uh, but also welcoming. Uh, we'd very much encourage you to engage in that. Uh, all the other offerings that will be upcoming in the coming months uh, are on that card. Uh, but also, over the next several weeks, uh, we're going to actually, through this current series, not so much spend time um, processing uh, what Christians believe, uh, but rather we want to consider who Christians are, or at least who Christians ought to be, which is that of a distinct community that reflects the character of God. And we're starting here because uh, in all of our efforts to invite people to experience the uh, faith in Jesus, it's also, it's been true that Christians have too often presented a, a distorted Jesus through both actions and attitudes. Uh, and I could list off for you, I won't, but I could list off for you brilliant women and men who are able to wax eloquent about all the things that Christians believe in ways that are uh, assertive and confident and rhetorically sound. But in their presentation, they present a distorted Christ because though they wax eloquent, they can also be arrogant or angry or they can have a, a cutting sarcasm or an intemperance or moral failures or more. In other words, they don't actually reflect Christ well, even though what they might be saying is very true. I have found over the years that when that happens, it's, it's so often better sometimes for them to just sit down, be quiet, and simply be part of a distinct community marked by the various things that we're going to be looking at throughout this series. Uh, I pray that we become a people, as we saw last week, a people of hope. And this week, my prayer is that we become a distinct community by also being a people of holiness— so to that end, let's consider what it means, uh, what holiness means by considering the nature of holiness, uh, the call of holiness, and then finally the presence of holiness, right? So first, uh, the nature of holiness. Just as a reminder, we are looking through um, First and Second Peter, uh, Peter uh, in this series. Uh, Peter, he's writing a letter that would have been widely distributed uh, to various churches all throughout Asia Minor uh, at the time of the writing. Uh, he's writing uh, to Christians that they ought to be this distinct community uh, as they live amongst those who believe differently than they do about Jesus. Uh, and in particular, he's writing to them with a knowledge that they are currently being persecuted by those who do not believe. Uh, so for the words that you hear Peter uh, speaking uh, or writing, the context is that Christians, they're on the margins. They are being persecuted for their faith. And with that in mind, he begins, as we saw last week, with the reminder that Christians are to be a people of hope in the midst of a context like that. And that that hope is found fully and completely in the work of Jesus on their behalf. And in particular, their hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, as uh, was considered again last week. But before he says anything more about who they ought to be uh, as people, it's important to note that he starts here. And we're going to start here as well. Right? We remember what Jesus has done, the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus, before we consider anything more. 
That's where Peter starts. That's where we're going to begin. That's where we did begin. But then Peter makes a really interesting turn in verse 13. If you want to maybe throw that up for us. Uh, we've said this many times uh, over, over the years. But whenever you see a therefore, you've got to pay attention. And if you haven't heard it before, uh, my grandfather, who was a preacher, used to always say, whenever you see a therefore, make sure you know what it's there for. Uh, Peter very much wants us to recognize that he's making a turn. He has said something, and now as a result of that something, he now says more. So as we've noted, Peter has been, uh, before this, reminding us of what it is that God has done. In essence, he has reminded us up until this point that, there is, that God's great mercy has been given to us. And as a result, there has been this new birth, a living hope that has come through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as a result of that, therefore, do the following. And we shouldn't move too quickly. Whenever we hit these, uh, these types of dynamics, I want to acknowledge and uh, emphasize how important the therefore is in the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel... Uh, is actually very much rooted in what we, what uh, the importance of the therefore. Because the gospel of Christ is not do certain things, obey certain commands, and as a result, therefore, you will receive the great mercy and the hope of God. Instead, the therefore of the gospel is that because you have already experienced the work of God in Christ in your life, because you've experienced the great mercy of God and the hope of the resurrection, Therefore, you must now do the following. And I'm emphasizing that because every other world religion tells you the exact opposite is necessary for salvation. Every other world religion will tell you salvation, or sorry, that uh, action will result in salvation. But the Christian gospel is that salvation has come. And as a result of that salvation, now you will see in your life action. And so what we have here is Peter emphasizing Jesus Christ has done a great work by his mercy in your life. Therefore, do the following. What is it that he calls us to do? Verse 13. With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written... Be holy because I am holy. Let me break down a few things there that we see. The first thing that we see there is we see Peter really strongly emphasizing uh, an idea in the statement that with, so, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Right? He's emphasizing the importance of this idea. Now that, that literally translates to gird up the loins of your mind, which I find to be an interesting description. I'm glad they cleaned that up for our uh, modern ears a little bit. But the picture that he is describing here is that at the time people wore um, long robes, clothing, that they needed to gather up the, all the extra cloth and tie it between their legs and around their waist if they were about to step into some kind of action. Because if you didn't, you were going to trip over uh, all this extra cloth. And so the point that he's making here is that preparing for the Christian life is not some haphazard thing that we just stumble into. Instead, the Christian life, this notion of holiness, is a very purposeful thing. It requires us to be intentionally setting our minds upon it. That's number one. The second thing uh, is not only does he call us to set our minds on or to gird up the loins of our mind, 
Uh, but he also shows us what we're to set our minds upon. He goes on to say, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Peter, again, is calling Christians to set their minds on the hope that they have in Jesus. Intentionally, set your mind on that hope. That's part of what the Christian life requires, thinking about it, considering it, putting our minds upon it. Why? Because think about what I said about, the, about uh, these Christians that he's writing to. They're, they're being persecuted. And if the only thing that they focused on was the suffering of the moment, then nothing about what he's about to say next is really going to matter. And so he says to them, remember the hope that you have in Christ's return, when all suffering will be eliminated. And then he gets finally to, this, to the actual outworking of what it means to set our minds, to gird up the loins of our minds, thinking about the hope that we have in Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, to set our minds on this hope so that then we do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you were in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Verse 16 for it is written, be holy because I am holiness. Holiness is the outworking of the intentional hope that we possess in Jesus. And quite literally, holiness is what it means for the church to be a distinct people. Now, what is holiness? Well, to grasp the notion of holiness, we actually need to start where God starts, which is his own holiness. Now, the word holiness literally means to set apart uh, it means to be separate. It means to be different. And so this idea of holiness, it could uh, be translated as God saying, be set apart because I am set apart, or be different because I am different. Right? To be holy is to be distinct. Now, often when we uh, think about holiness, especially if maybe you grew up uh, in the church, holiness can very much, uh, very quickly bring our minds to the notions of personal holiness or moral piety or the ideas of obeying the laws of God, which is absolutely true. It's absolutely part of what holiness means. But when we consider what God's holiness is, holiness is not just about our, uh, God's, uh, any action of God, but holiness for God is actually about his being. It's his very nature. It's about his very character. It's who he is. In his essence, God is holy. In his essence, he is set apart. He is separate. And his actions reflect that distinctiveness. Uh, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, they, they speak of God being holy, holy, holy. Uh, when the Bible speaks in those ways, in those repeated ways, it's, it's a way of emphasizing the, the, mere, the, the true perfection of that attribute being described. And so what that tells us is that God's holiness, it's a perfect holiness. It is a perfect distinctiveness. Uh, it could be said that holiness is not just one of God's attributes, but rather holiness is the defining attribute through which all his other attributes can be understood. Meaning, when we say that God is love, that love is by definition a holy love. It's a distinct kind of love. When we speak of God being merciful, that God is mercy, we're talking about a holy mercy, a distinct kind of mercy. You know, God is a God of, he's a God of justice. That's a holy justice, a distinct justice. His character and his attributes are what they are because of his holiness. Now, why does all of that matter? 
It matters greatly because in verse 15 and 16, there's a rather confronting couple of verses. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Be holy. Be set apart because God is set apart and has set you apart, Christian, as his people. And as a result, you are to reflect that set-apartness in the way that you live. That's what holiness means. Your love, your grace, your, your justice, your purity, your compassion, your patterns of life should reflect not your own natural instincts, but rather ought to reflect the patterns and the actions of a perfectly holy God. That's the nature of holiness. But what does that then look like, practically speaking? Right, what does it mean to be set apart, to be distinct, to be holy? Well, that's where we consider the true call of holiness. So we've been told to be holy. How do we actually do that? Uh, I've been reading through this very short commentary on First Peter written by uh, Miroslav Wolf. He's a, a professor of theology up at Yale. But he's also, uh, he's a Protestant uh, who grew up in Croatia and grew up under communist rule. Uh, which, uh, as you could imagine, created a lot of re uh, religious tensions for him growing up. Uh, he also witnessed the atrocities and the desolation of his homeland during the Yugoslavian wars. And I bring up that context because he knows what it means to be distinct amid persecution and suffering. He experienced it firsthand. He understands First Peter probably better than most of us do uh, because of his experiences. And I've been tempted to just every week get up here and read his commentary instead of even preaching. It's that good. Uh, you can Google it. It's out there. I would highly recommend it if you're interested. But he is reflecting on, uh, in that commentary, he reflects on the Christian identity and how the Christian identity is tied to our understanding of holiness. And he points out that for too many people, holiness is rooted in a really problematic posture, specifically that for many, when they hear the call to be holy or set apart from the world, uh, they understand that primarily as resisting the perversions of the immorality out in the world to posture themselves against the world. Uh, in other words, the, the world becomes an enemy, and our fight for holiness is a, is a fight against our enemy, which is the, the patterns of the world that, we're, that we ought to reject. But what he does is he argues that this posture is actually very uh, wrongly shaping Christians to be against something when in reality, holiness ought to be more about Christians being for something. All right, so with that context, I, I put up the um, uh, a quote from him that I want to read that he kind of unpacks that idea a bit more. He says this. He says, identity, actually, is that, did I put that in the PowerPoint? I didn't put that in the PowerPoint. Bummer. Okay, just pay attention. Here we go. Identity can be forged through two related but clearly distinct processes, either through a negative process of rejecting the beliefs and practices of others, or through a positive process of giving allegiance to something distinctive. It is significant that Peter uh, consistently establishes the difference positively, not negatively. There are no direct injunctions not to behave as non-Christians do. Rather, the exhortation to be different centers primarily on the positive example of a holy God and the suffering of Christ. 
This is surprising, especially given the situation of social conflict in which uh, Peter's community was engaged. We expect injunctions to reject the ways of the world. Instead, we find admonitions to follow the path of Christ. Do you hear what he's saying here? I mean, hear the word, these words, from a man who's intimately familiar with rejection and persecution that comes from those uh, in his context, that comes as a result of being Christian. He says that the call of the Christian is not to pursue holiness in a negative way, or that is by not doing what the world does, but rather the pursuit of holiness centers primarily on the positive example of a holy God and a suffering Christ. I tell you what, when I read that, it, it blew my mind. I had to sit with it for a little while. Because often when I think about holiness, and maybe many of you would be in the same, uh, the same boat, or the notion of being set apart, it's very easy to begin assuming a negative posture. That is a posture that seems to pit us as Christians against the world. We see what the world is doing, and so our holiness means we don't do that. I think there is, however, when we position ourselves that way, and as I thought about it, I've actually uh, kind of dawned on me, there's actually two consequences to that posture that I've seen as a pastor, as a Christian. Two uh, postures that I think are extraordinarily problematic when we see the world as something to fight. Posturing ourselves against the world often will lead us either to be a people of compromise or it'll lead us to be a people of self-righteousness. Let me explain what I mean by that. For some, when we hear about God's commands uh, as examples, when we hear about God's commands around sexual morality or greed or lust or selfishness or self-glorification, and we reject the way the world engages in those things, right? the, a world that disobeys the commands of God. And when we hear about how uh, judgment might come or, or will come against those who uh, disobey the commands of God, we set ourselves up against the world. But then you go out into the world and you have relationships with people who believe very differently than you about these types of things. And you begin to meet them and you think, oh, they seem like really good people. And so this idea of holiness or being set apart, that doesn't, it just doesn't seem right, right? The notion of them being judged for their wickedness and idolatry just doesn't seem to resonate with you. And so as a result, we're willing to compromise on the commands and the laws of God. Because if holiness means that I need to be combative with the world or with people that I really like, then I think I'd rather just not pursue holiness, right? So the negative posture of being against something actually leads some to compromise, but then there's another kind of extreme version of that. Because for others, we maybe like setting ourselves up against the world. Right? We love the fight. Right? We relish being different. And we enjoy being combative. And we love making sure that others know that they are wicked and idolatrous and will be judged. But also, when we take that kind of posture, us against the world, it would almost without fail leads deep self-righteousness, arrogance, anger, vitriol. Right? That negative posture of being against something actually leads us to sinful self-righteousness. And Wolf says, no, that should not be the motivating factor. And actually, as Wolf is uh, unpacking what Peter is saying, Peter is saying that should not be the motivating factor of our pursuits of holiness. 
We should not only have a, a, a negative or a don't be like the world posture, but instead we should have a, a positive or a be like Christ posture that shapes our holiness. And the point is that holiness is not primarily a call away from something, but rather it's a call toward something. And that something is our holy and merciful God, a suffering Savior. And what I find to be ironic is the results will actually be pretty similar, right? The actual, what we actually do with our lives will be very similar, uh, whether we take that negative posture or the positive one. But the result, though the result might be, you know, a life marked by purity and obedience to the commands of God, the reason for our pursuits of that holiness create a completely different posture because my holiness will then be shaped by a love for Jesus, not by some hatred of the world. And for those who have a, a tendency toward compromise, let me just say, your right to feel uneasy about what feels like making enemies of people who are not Christians or who believe differently because you disagree, because you disagree about particular things. Your right to feel a little bit uneasy about that, but compromising and disobeying what God deems to be good, right, and true is not the answer. What we need, actually, is a greater love for Jesus that sustains our convictions to obey him, while also at the same time being loving and gracious to those who believe differently, and to the point of our entire series, to invite them into a similar faith in Jesus. And if we have no conviction for obedience, maybe it's because we lack a true love for Jesus. But similarly, the other end of that spectrum— for those with a tendency toward self-righteousness, hear me, you, you, you are right to feel compelled to keep yourself pure and unblemished by the ways of the world. But if we have conviction for obedience that makes us arrogant and self-righteous, maybe it's because we actually lack a true love for Jesus. Because a greater love for Jesus will make our convictions less combative, less arrogant, less prone to self-righteous, and instead will be shaped by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. God, when God calls us to be holy, it's not primarily a calling to turn away from the world. It is primarily a calling to, 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 be, uh, to turn toward him. And in that turning— in the words of that old hymn, when we turn toward Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Because when we turn our eyes toward Jesus, holiness now becomes this joyful pursuit of being in his presence, being near him, being close to him. Which brings us finally the importance of understanding the presence of holiness quickly. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, I said earlier that uh, holiness is not so much uh, an attribute of God, but rather it is his essence. It's who he is. And that holiness, that distinctiveness, that perfection is the kind of perfection that we really have no categories for. Right? It's a glory that is beyond our full comprehension. And as I was thinking about how do we understand or know the holiness and the glory of God, a passage uh, came to mind for me uh, that I come back to regularly in Exodus 33. Uh, if you uh, 
know that uh, story of what's happening in Exodus 33, Moses, he's longing for God's presence to be with uh, both him and the people so that uh, all the people of Israel, when they go out into the world, right, when they interact with other peoples of the world, uh, Moses longs for God's presence to go with them so that the world might know that Israel is God's people. And so he's having this conversation with God. And I thought I put this in there. I'm guessing I didn't put this passage in there either, right? It's okay. Fat in a thousand. Sorry, everyone. But in Exodus 33, verse 15, let me just read to you this interaction uh, that they have. Then Moses said to him, to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will, hear this, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Uh, Jumping ahead to 17. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I... uh, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. What's happening there? First, don't miss that God is describing right? his, his holy glory is so magnificent that if Moses looked upon it, it would kill him. And so God provides a way for him to experience his glory by shielding Moses in the cleft of the rock. But also that glory, that holy glory is what proves that God is with his people. Hebrews 1 speaks of that glory in a very profound way. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is the holiness. He is the glory of God in the flesh. This is the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus, the Son of God, comes in perfect holiness, to be present with us. Jesus is our cleft in the rock. And the work of Jesus is the fullest expression of true holiness, of what it truly means to be set apart and distinct. You know, in his life, Jesus was perfectly and completely obedient to the law of God and possessed that set-apartness from the world that was rooted in his love for the Father. On the cross, Jesus is the embodiment of of holiness, the holiness of God in action. For on the cross, we see the seriousness of God's demand for holiness, a distinctiveness amongst his people. But we also see a compassion and a love and a mercy as Jesus willingly takes upon himself the consequences of our failures to be a holy and distinct people. And in his resurrection and ascension, Like Moses, we have been given an encouragement that this glorious holiness, the set-apartness, actually goes with us as we move out into the world. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 28? As he's about to uh, ascend back to the Father and he's sending out his disciples into the world, uh, this is what we uh, tend to call the Great Commission, where where they're sent out to make known uh, the gospel message. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. 
He tells them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And he says this, right? After saying all of that, he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The glory and the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God, goes with you by the Spirit of Christ who is in you as you trust in the work of Jesus for you. I'll close with this. As Christians, a distinct people, a public people, Moses' question very much ought to be our question. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? For you, Christian, it is the holy glory of Jesus that makes you distinct. And in all the places that you go, in all the conversations that you have, Jesus, by his Spirit, is with you and in you and working through you. That is why our faith can be public. That is why you can live holy, a set-apart life, because your Savior, the one whom your eyes, our eyes ought to be fixed, that Savior is with you. And I pray that as a, a public people, as a distinct community out in the world, that the words of that, that hymn would be true for us, that as we look upon Jesus and as we go out into the world, that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, and that that posture would cause us to be a people who reflect the glory and the beauty and the holiness of Jesus, that we might then invite other people to experience that faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the reality that you are a perfect, glorious, holy God, set apart, completely distinct. It's part of your very essence. And that, Lord, you invite us into that. But, Lord, uh, we recognize that we are, of course, sinful people who reject your law have no true desire in and of ourselves to obey and follow you, but because of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us, we are made a distinct people because of your mercy. And because you have made us a distinct people, welcomed us into the experience of your holiness, you now call us to be a people who live holy, to live in light of now being that distinct people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of what it took to make us that distinct people, but that you would also remind us that as you send us out into your world, you call us to be that holy people, that distinct people, that also welcome others to experience the same. We trust that your Spirit empowers us to do it. And so, Lord, would you do it in us and through us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.